Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Ni'ima Novetsky. Our past few classes have focused on the various laws of Chapter 19 and how they relate to the chapter's initial command, Kedoshim Tiyu, you shall be holy. Today, we'll start by looking somewhat briefly at the last few verses of the chapter, which move from the realm of mitzvot related to God and the distancing of the nation from idolatrous practices back to the interpersonal realm. We'll then move into the first half of chapter 20, looking at two fascinating topics, what it means to give one seed to the molech and the prohibition against divination and black magic. So let's pick up where we left off at the end of last class in verse 32. These last few verses of the chapter contain three distinct laws, honoring the elderly, not taking advantage of the foreigner, and being honest in one's business transactions. Verse 32 opens the unit. You shall rise before the aged and show deference to the elderly. You shall fear your God. I am Hashem. Commentators question whether a verse speaks of an elder in years or in wisdom, pointing to many instances where the words kinim refers not just to the elderly, but to wise men. They conclude that the verse must refer to both. An elderly person, regardless of his book knowledge, is deserving of respect, just as a tamit chacham, regardless of his age, is also so deserving. The first clause of the verse, mitnei takum, mandates a very specific action, standing in the elder's presence, while the second clause, v'hadarta penei to revere one's elders, is much more amorphous. What's included in this part of the mitzvah? The Sifra, the Midrash Halacha in our verse, answers, Lo yeshev bimkomo, velo medaber bimkomo, velo soter dvarav. One may not sit in his place, speak in his stead, or contradict his words. This list is similar to the list that we saw when defining the mitzvah of your atoim, hearing parents. It's interesting that the Midrash chooses to list examples of what a person is prohibited from doing, rather than what a person is obligated to do. Since Hidur is defined as honor, we might have thought that the list would be closer to that given for the mitzvah of kibbut harib, respecting parents, which included serving, feeding, and clothing one's parents, all positive commands. It's possible that since the first half of our verse mandates a positive action, standing, the Midrash assumes that all similar positive commandments can be learned from it. As such, they use the second ambiguous phrase as a source for any negative commands, what we must refrain from doing as part of our respect of the elderly. The Sifra adds one more point. It asks, Yachol yahadrenu b'mamon? Must one honor the elderly via financial means? It answers, Takum v'hadarta, ma'kima she'in b'chisaron kis, afhidur she'in b'chisaron kis. It answers that one has no such obligation, just as standing before the elderly requires no monetary loss, so too in other areas one need not honor through money. As such, if someone is in the middle of work and being paid by the hour, he is not obligated to stop in order to honor the elderly. The verse ends, and you shall fear your God. Rashi explains that since this commandment is one of the heart, and no one knows but you whether or not you have observed it, the verse reminds us that Hashem is aware. You shall fear your God. Rabag instead suggests that the verse is telling us that revering the elderly 
will lead to more yirat shemayim, to more fear of heaven. If you recognize the wisdom of your elders and honor them for it, how much more so will you fear God when you recognize how much his wisdom surpasses theirs? The next two verses move from those we tend to revere to those we tend to denigrate. Pasuk Lama Gimel. If a stranger lives as a foreigner with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. The stranger who lives as a foreigner with you shall be to you as the native born among you, and you shall love him as you love yourself. For you lived as foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am Hashem, your God. This mitzvah mandates that we not mistreat the ger. From a simple reading of the verse, it's not clear if it is referring to a ger tzedek, someone who has converted, or to any foreigner. Chazal understands it to refer to the former, but obviously one should not mistreat anyone, and especially those who are strangers in a new place with no support system. What is included in this prohibition against ona'ah, against mistreatment? Chazal and Bavli Bava Metzia speak about two realms, ona'a in speech and in business transactions. One may not mock a convert, reminding them how they used to be an idolater, nor may one trick a foreigner in business. Rav Yosef Bechoshor points out that since the foreigner is not used to Israel's ways and customs, it's quite easy to take advantage of him. And so the Torah warns against deceiving him, telling us to love him instead like we would love ourselves. According to the Gemara, there are 36 distinct warnings throughout Torah against taking advantage of and wronging the foreigner, highlighting how important Torah finds this mitzvah and perhaps how prevalent it thinks mistreatment of the other normally is. The Torah's discussion of the mitzvah ends by reminding the nation that they too were foreigners in Egypt. We, of all people, should know what it feels like to be mistreated as a foreigner. This brings us to the last mitzvah of the chapter in verses 35 and 36. You shall not do injustice in judgment in measures of length, of weight, or of quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ifa, which is a dry measure of volume, and a just hin, a liquid measure of volume. I am Hashem, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Though the verse opens with language that appears to refer to judgment in court, lo ta'asu mishpat, from context, the words apparently refer to being upright in one's business transactions. The first verse warns about the actions of the person himself, that he weigh and measure properly. The second verse warns about the tools of transaction that one's scale is correct and the like. In ancient times, merchants would use a balance scale to weigh out merchandise, placing a stone with a set weight on one side and the merchandise on the other. If one wanted to, there were quite a few ways to cheat a customer. For example, if the strings holding the cups of the two sides of the scale are uneven, or if the cups are not of equal distance from the center, the balance will be affected. Similarly, one might use a stone which weighs only 900 grams, but pass, it off, but pass it off as a kilo measure. As such, Hashem warns us to both use a just balance and just weight. 
The chapter closes in verse 37 with a general admonition to keep Hashem's laws. Ushmartem et kochukotai bekomishbatai basitemotam anihashem. So to summarize a bit of what we've seen in chapter 19 over the last few classes. The chapter opened with the proclamation, Kidoshim Tiyu, mandating that the nation separate and sanctify itself. Commentators dispute how this is to be understood, though we raised one possibility that Hashem is telling the nation to separate themselves from the customs of surrounding cultures and to instead fulfill his laws, examples of which followed throughout the chapter. The mitzvot listed in the chapter are varied, with each of the Ten Commandments being represented in some form or another. Some of the laws touch on societal interactions, others on a relationship with Hashem, and many on the need not to follow the superstitious and idolatrous practices of foreign nations. Chapter 20 continues with the theme of Kiddushah, but it does not really introduce any new laws. Instead, it reiterates most of the laws relating to sexual prohibitions mentioned in chapter 8 and a couple of laws from chapter 19, this time focusing not on the prohibition, but its punishment. The chapter divides into three main sections. Verses 1 through 6 speak of the punishments for the prohibitions of the molech and necromancy. Verses 7 through 8 segue into the next unit, verses 9 through 21, which speak mainly of sexual crimes. Verses 22 to the end of the chapter serves to close the unit, repeating the warning not to imitate other cultures and to be holy to Hashem. We'll spend the rest of this class examining the first subsection, that dealing with the molech and necromancy, and we'll turn to the rest of the chapter, Mir Hashem, in the next class. The first five verses of the unit speak of giving one seed to the molech. Pasuk Aleph, Vayidaber Hashem al Moshe Limor. Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, the El Bnei Yisrael Tomar, Ish Ish Mibnei Yisrael, Umin Hagar Hagar Bi Yisrael, Asher Yitim Mizar Ola Molech, Mot Yumat. You shall tell the children of Israel, any one of the children of Israel, or of the strangers who live as foreigners in Israel, who gives any of his seed to the Molech, he shall surely be put to death. Am Haaretz Yirgamuhu Baven, the people of the land shall stone him with stones. This verse speaks of the punishment for giving one seed to the Molech. The exact nature of the crime is debated, and we'll speak about it at length in just a couple of minutes. Whatever the crime, though, the verse states that all who are culpable will be stoned. The next verse, though, appears to mandate a different punishment. Pasu Gimel. I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. He has, because he has given of his seed to Molech to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. According to this verse, it's not the people who will punish the offender with stoning, but Hashem himself who will cut him off from the nation. The reason given, the offender has defiled both the Mikdash and Hashem's name. The next verses continue. If the people of the land hide their eyes from that person when he gives of his seed to the molech, and don't put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his family. And I will cut him off, and all who play the prostitute after him, I will cut him off from among their people. 
Here we are told that if the nation does not punish the offender, Hashem will not only cut off the offending party, but also set his face against his family. The verses we've read raise several questions. First, what is the relationship between the various punishments discussed? Is the offender punished by the people, by Hashem, or by both? Why is the punishment of karet mentioned twice? Second, in what ways does this crime defile the Mikdash and Hashem's name? And third, most importantly, what exactly is the crime? What does it mean to pass one seed to the Molech? As far as the punishment, Ibn Ezra explains that the punishments in the various, reverse, in the various verses refer to different scenarios. In a case where there are witnesses, the person is punished by human courts. If, however, the act was done in secret and there were no witnesses, or if it was done in the open, but the people decide nonetheless not to prosecute and act as if the crime never happened, then Hashem punishes the offender by himself. Ibn Ezra also brings a minority opinion that suggests that the punishment of Karait mentioned refers not to cutting short the life of the criminal, but to punishing and cutting off the offender's children, in which case the verse might not speak of two scenarios, but of one case with a double punishment. As far as defiling the Mikdash, Rashi suggests that this is actually a metaphor for B'nai Israel, which is Mikudash Tashem, sanctified to God. If so, the verse is saying that the act is so abhorrent that it causes a desecration not only of Hashem's name, but of Am Yisrael as a whole. Moving to the most important question, what is the crime which we are talking about anyway? Who is the Molech? What does it mean to give one seed to him? To answer, it pays to first survey the various verses where the Molech is mentioned and see what else can be gleaned from them. Outside of our unit, the word comes up in just four other verses in Tanakh. The first appearance is in Vayikra 18, where the prohibition of our verse is first mentioned, but without the accompanying punishment. The verse reads, This verse is pretty similar to ours, though it's interesting to note the different verbs used in the two verses. By us, the verse speaks only of giving one seed to the Molech, while chapter 18 uses two verbs, both to give and to pass. It's not clear if the difference is significant. Does Vayikra 18 imply a two-step process, both giving and passing? Or is the repetition insignificant and either verb could have been used alone? In both our chapter and in Vayikra 18, the prohibition is found in the context of a discussion of sexual prohibitions. In contrast, the context of the other three verses where the Molech appears is idolatry. All three of these verses are from Nevi'im, from the prophets. Malachim Aleph, chapter 11, identifies Molech as the god of Ammon. Malachim Bet, chapter 23, speaks of passing, one, passing one's son or daughter through fire to the Molech in Gei Ben-Hinom. While Yirmiyahu similarly mentions Gei Ben-Hinom and the passing of children to the Molech, but makes no mention of fire. In contrast to our verse, which mentions Zerah, seed, these verses explicitly refer to children. The two nouns might be synonymous, but the difference is still worth noting. Together, these verses from Nevi'im imply that the Molech was some foreign deity who was worshipped through either child immolation or another act involving fire. Other verses in Tanakh similarly attest to the existence of a cult of child sacrifice, but without mentioning the Molech. 
For example, in Devarim, Hashem warned against following in the ways of foreigners, for they burned their children in fire to their gods. Elsewhere, such worship is said to take place specifically in Gei Ben Hinom, the valley mentioned in our earlier verses. Thus, for example, Devarim in Bet, chapter 28, speaks of the wicked king Ahad. These two verses use the verb Yisrafu and Vayav'er, both meaning to burn, clarifying that the children were actually burned. The root Saraf, though, is not mentioned in any of the verses which actually mention the Molech. In these, only the verbs Lahavir and Natan, to pass and to give, come, come up, making one wonder if the various verses are referring to the same or to distinct practices. So to summarize our findings so far, some verses speak of the molech in the context of sexual prohibitions, and others in the context of idolatry. Some speak of one's seed, and others speak of one's children. One verse explicitly mentions passing a child through fire. In other places where similar worship is discussed, though, the molech is not mentioned, and the child is explicitly said to be burned while in all of our verses, the verb used is only to give or pass. Commentators work with these facts, reaching quite different conclusions regarding the nature of our prohibition. The vast majority of commentators assume that the Molech prohibition refers to idolatry of some sort. According to some, it is speaking of child sacrifice and immolation, while others assume that it refers to a more general consecration of children to the service of foreign gods. According to the first variation, Molech is the name of a specific foreign deity who is worshipped through child immolation. When the verse mentions giving and passing one zera, this is equivalent in meaning to passing one's child through fire. Chazal in Mishnah Sanhedrin suggests that there was a two-stage process, and one is only culpable if he both gives his child to the priest and also has him pass through fire. According to this approach, all the verses which mention child sacrifice are referring to the same prohibition, regardless of whether they mention Molech Banin, and each can bear light on the other. A variation of this approach, though, distinguishes between the verses and assumes that the Molech prohibition does not actually involve immolation, as none of the verses which speak of the Molech mention an actual burning of the child. This leads them to conclude that the verse is speaking only about consecrating one's child to worship of a foreign god, not to sacrificing and killing him in the process. What then does the verse mean when it speaks of passing a child to the molech through fire? Rashi suggests that this refers to having the child pass between two bonfires, not that he is burned by them. Rav Yehuda and the Sifre suggest that such an action symbolizes the making of a covenant, in this case with idolatry. Comparing it to other covenants in Tanakh, like Brit bin Hadbitarim, Hashem's covenant with Avraham. There too, a covenant is made by passing between something, in that case, pieces of cut animals. Some have suggested that the action is a symbolic one. The people making the treaty or covenant say that anyone who transgresses the conditions of the covenant will suffer the same fate as the cut animals. In the case of passing through bonfires, one might say similarly that the ceremony is announcing that disloyalty to the god Molech will result in death by fire. Both of these approaches, which explain that the Molech is a form of idolatrous worship, need to explain why the prohibition is found in the context of sexual prohibitions. 
they would likely answer that both Vayikra 18 and Vayikra 20 are sandwiched by a general injunction against adopting the practices of the Egyptians and Canaanites. As we saw in earlier classes, Vayikra 18 opens with the commands, we should not follow the actions of either Egypt or Canaan. Our chapter similarly ends by speaking of how Hashem has separated us from surrounding nations. You shall be holy to me, for I am holy, and I have separated you from other nations to be mine. Thus, the prohibition against the Molech might be included in the unit as yet another example of the immoral actions of these nations, which needs to be avoided. A second, minority approach, understands the prohibition regarding the Molech in a very different manner. It takes the context of, prohibit of prohibited relations as its starting point, and asserts that our verse is not speaking about idolatry at all, but is yet another example of the sexual prohibitions of the chapter. It comes to prohibit carnal relations with a non-Jewish woman. Apparently, this position understands the Molech to refer not to a type of idolatry, but to a worshipper of idolatry. This position could read the phrase literally to mean that one may not give one seed, one semen, to such an idolater. Alternatively, one might suggest that the verse is saying not to have intercourse with a woman which might lead to worship of the Molech, the feared repercussions of such a union. This approach works well with the verses in Vayikra, but encounters much difficulty explaining the context of fire in Sefer Malachim. It's possible that besides the contextual motivation, this position is further driven to read the prohibition in this manner in order to find an explicit Torah prohibition against intermarriage, which is not limited to the seven nations. For otherwise, perhaps surprisingly, no such prohibition is explicit in all of Torah. Moving to the next prohibition in our chapter, Pasuk Vav. The person that turns to those who are mediums and to the wizards to play the prostitute after them, I will even set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. This verse, like the previous ones, does not introduce a new prohibition but instead gives the punishment for a prohibition already mentioned in previous chapters, turning to Avot and Yidonim. This has been understood as necromancy, communing with the dead in order to foretell the future. Rashi, based on the Gemara and Masachat Sanhedrin, suggests that the difference between an Ov and a Yidoni relates to the methods that they use to revive the dead. The prohibition raises an important question. Does the Torah believe in black magic? On this question, there's a major divide between our commentators, with rationalists on one side emphatically saying that there is no such truth to these practices, and those more mystically inclined saying that there is truth in magic and that the Torah itself believes in it. Thus, regarding our prohibition, Ibn Ezra writes, and the brainless has said that if necromancy and magic were not true, the text would not have prohibited them. And I say the opposite, for the Torah does not prohibit that which is true, but only that which is false, and the evidence is in the idolatry.
Worship idols is prohibited specifically because it is false. The Rambam, not surprisingly, echoes, Udvarim ha'ilu kulan and these matters are all lies and falsehood. According to Ibn Ezra and Rambam, there is no such thing as magic, and the reason the practices are forbidden is precisely because they are nonsensical and have no utility. Ramban, in contrast, explains that black magic is a real art, though an imprecise one, and it is forbidden only because Hashem prefers other modes of divining, that B'nai Israel seek the future only through a prophet of Hashem. The danger of black magic is twofold. First, because it is imprecise and not always accurate, but also because the practitioner easily comes to see themselves as a god. Which side of the debate is supported by the stories of Tanakh? One need go no further than the opening chapters of Sefer Shmot to find stories of magicians performing magical feats. The Khartoumim of Egypt can turn staffs into snakes, water into blood, and bring forth frogs. In Sefer Shmuel, we find evidence of the Ov and Yidoni mentioned in our verse, as King Saul seeks out an Ashid Ba'alata Ov to bring the prophet Samuel from the dead. A simple reading of the chapter implies that she is in fact able to revive Shmuel, and that he comes back to life and has a whole conversation with King Shaul. So how do rationalists such as Rambam and Ibn Ezra understand the story? They would likely posit, as does Rav Shmuel ben Chafmigaon, that the Ba'alata Ov did not have any real magical powers to revive the dead and simply trick Shaul as she did all of her clients. She perhaps knew how to throw her voice so that people thought that they were hearing the dead or had someone hide in an adjacent room and speak as if he were the dead. In Shaul's case, his fear and anxiety might have helped him imagine what he wanted to believe. Others suggest that it was Hashem himself who revived Shmuel and that the necromancer was just as shocked to see him as was Shaul. Both rationalist and mystic apparently have on what to rely. If you believe in magic or you scoff at it, there are those who have preceded you and explain the text accordingly. This brings us to the end of this section of the chapter. Emir Hashem, in our next class, we will look at the rest of the chapter, which discusses the, punish the punishment for the various sexual offenses that we looked at in chapter 18.